We're in Second Samuel six, and we will get into Second Samuel seven, <clears throat> which next to Genesis twelve is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. But let's finish six first of all. I'm not exactly sure where I stop, but I'm going to fourteen. Okay. Fourteen. Okay. okay. That's where you want. Good. All right. If you uh, Look at verse 14. I, I think everybody was here last week, so you all know the context. David has retrieved the ark, brought it back to Jer Jerusalem after some bit of challenges there with Usah and touching the ark. David had carried it in the wrong way, but anyway, now it is in Jerusalem. And in verse 14, it tells us that David danced before the Lord. The Hebrew word is translated dance there. It's really hard to um, hard to, to capture what it really involves, but it's apparently kind of a whirling around. You know, he's whirling around, dancing around like a circle. I mean, he isn't doing a square dance. He isn't doing a line dance, which is what some of us older people might be familiar with. But it's, I mean, there's just nothing really to compare it to in, in terms of how you and I think of dance in the 21st century. But it's a joyous expression, pre presumably spontaneous on his part. And you'll notice as well, it says, dance before the Lord, and note it's Yahweh there, with all his might. So this is a, a whirling around, dancing uh, with tremendous energy. And it is also important, he's wearing a linen ephod. Now that will be important because of what his wife Michelle says, which we'll get to in just a minute, what he has on. It's really important to remember that. All that means is he doesn't have his royal robes on. He doesn't have his crown on. He doesn't have a scepter. He just has like a, a long, uh, like when my children would, were young, they would put on a, wrap themselves in, in a sheet, an old sheet. And I, I mean, it's, 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 there's nothing to it. But he's, he's expressing in a spontaneous way incredible unrestrained joy. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Understandably and correctly and properly, they're rejoicing. So what happens is his wife sees this. Now, um, if you look at the if you look at the this uh, map that we looked at last week, this is the city of David at the time of David. He builds his palace right here. On, on the northwestern corner of this walled area in the city. That's his palace. So she presumably is here at the palace looking down, because this is high, looking down on the, on the Mount Moriah area, the flat area there where he puts the ark. So she's looking down and she sees him. And as the ark came into the city, Michelle, the daughter of Pharaoh, Saul looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And the language here is very, very strong. She despised him in her heart. Now, men, what you see is a distinct contrast. David joyfully, exuberantly praising and just, he's, he's just absolutely unrestrained in his excitement that God has allowed him to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. By con in contrast, she despises him. She should be equally as joyful. <laughs> but she devises, despises him in her heart. And remember, there's a lot in back of this. And if you remember previous chapters, part of the deal with Abner was, if you remember that, uh, who was leading the Ishbosheth, 
I will, I will allow you to come down and become my ally if you bring my wife, Michelle, with me, with you. He, he, had, he had married her. She was the daughter of Saul by right. He never divorced her. She is his wife, regardless of how you think about it. And that's part of how she's responding to this. Verse 17, they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place. Inside the tent, David had pitched for it. David offered burnt offerings, peace offerings before the Lord. What's in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 of Leviticus, David is doing that. And this would be presumably not only for himself, but in a sense for the nation. And remember, that's why it's really important to recall that peace offering, shalom, that peace offering, everything is right between us and God. Everything is settled between us and God. So these are appropriate offerings that he's offering. <clears throat> and when David had finished offering the burnt offering to peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. That marvelous title of God that we've seen in First and Second Samuel. And distributed on all the people, whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins for each one. And that's really, that's remarkable generosity on the part of the king. So it's a, it's a celebratory time, and, and this is also important to remember. When you go back and read Leviticus 3, as you go through the peace offering and all that is involved, at the end of that is you sit down and have a meal. And so David is doing that, and it's not only, it's not only you know, his court. It's everybody that's there. So we have to just infer that it would be the tribal leaders, the clan leaders, more than likely Levitical priests, and many others. It's, there's no way it's every per person from the 12 tribes. That, that's not even fathomable. But, I mean, this is a lot of people, and so they're, they're rejoicing. So it's just a, it's cor and properly, correctly, and appropriately. This is worship. This is joy. This is exuberance. And it culminates in a peace-offering meal, which is what's going on here. Then all the people departed each his own house. So then they go back home. But we're not done with Michelle yet. And David returned to bless his household. Michelle, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today, before the eyes of the servant, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. That, that's horrible. <laughs> but when she says, Uncovering himself today, don't misunderstand. He he did not he did not dance naked. That's not what she's saying. She's talking about that linen ephod that he was wearing. Now, granted, it would have been I, I can't I can't really do any analogy of anything we wear today. But it, you know, it'd be start at the shoulders, just go all the way down to his feet, and uh, it was very loose fitting. And so he's dancing around and whirling around. And she's and, and when she says honored himself, that's that's satire, that's biting sarcasm. And she's really she's just leveling both barrels at David. David said to Michelle, It was before the Lord who chose me to be above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make Mary before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michelle, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. 
What the Bible does not say in verse 23 is that God did that. He doesn't say that God's disciplined her for that. But it's probably a legitimate conclusion. But the Bible doesn't say that. I mean, it doesn't declare that that verse 23 is a result of what she did. It's just stating a fact. And so it's um, it's in a sense, again, this ongoing contrast throughout First and Sam, First Samuel between David and Saul. Now Saul's dead. Now it's between David and Saul's daughter. I mean, she should have been if she is a, if she's genuinely an Israelite, genuinely understanding the importance of what's happened. She should be rejoicing, just like David is. But she despises him. And again, it's that whole history of everything we know. But uh, it's, it's very sad. Would the women uh, be more inclined to feel that way since they were viewed as chattel um, by the husband, as you kind of brought out last week? It wasn't the same as we have today. No, of course not. Um, well, th- yes, but I'm not sure, Fred, that that's the primary emotion that she is feeling or expressing and talking about here. It's it's a lot of the history of their relationship. It isn't so much, in this context, the difference between man and woman in the ancient Near Eastern world and all that society uh, that was a part of it. Um, I don't think that's the main. It's it's all that she, she she's resenting, she's despising. Uh, her husband, where she should be just like every other Jewish person at that time rejoicing. The ark is home. The ark is where it needs to be. It's in Jerusalem. And rejoicing and praising the Lord that we could do this. But uh, it's just, again, it, it, it's in line with her father. And that instead of being able to rejoice and worship and, 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 and defer to what the Lord is doing, um, she's just the opposite. And that's it's tragic because her her whole life uh, been difficult. And the man she was uh, said married when Saul refused to give her to David. Um, presumably she loved him and they had some kind of a relationship. But anyway, she's just a real tragic figure. But uh, that she was brought down to Jerusalem to be with David uh, does indicate that female situation in the ancient Eastern. She is subservient. She's not um, an object, but she is she's the wife. David bought her with a blood uh, with a, the bride price, 200 uh, Philistine uh, foreskins. And David said, I have a right to have her as my wife. I never devout, divorced her. She is my wife. I want her back. Complicated situation. It really is. All right, are you ready to start chapter 7? As I said earlier, next to Genesis 12, this is probably, in terms of covenant, the most important chapter in the Bible, in terms of covenant. So now I've set you up. It is imperative that you understand what goes on in this chapter. If you don't, Jesus will not let you into heaven. That's how important it is. I'm kidding, of course, but anyway. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, we read about that earlier, when he basically vanquished all the enemies of Israel and established his empire. The king said to Nathan the prophet, now I want to remind you of something here. In the monarchy, once the monarchy was established, 
I, I, I'm not going to draw it on the board. I've done it before, but let's just visualize. It's Yahweh, then the king, then the Levites, then the people. But there is an additional office now. On the side would be the prophets. And the whole, the whole scenario of this uh, 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 amended structure of Israel's society and government is the prophet. God would speak to the prophet, and the prophet would speak to the king and to the people. And by the 8th century B.C., we're now in the end of the 11th century B.C., by the 8th century B.C., these prophets are going to start writing what they say down. That's a terrible way to put it. They're going to start writing their prophecies, and they become the, the, the prophetic books of the Bible. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then the 12 minor prophets, you know, that you're all familiar with. You know, Amos, Habakkuk, Hosea, Joel, Amos, uh, Joel, um, Hosea, and, and then Zephaniah, and Zechariah, and Malachi, all of those. But we're still, these are just the verbal prophets. But it is important that you just kind of have in the back of your mind. They're in the court. And there are two prophets that serve David. Nathan here, and we read about the uh, one of the other a little bit earlier. His name was Gad, G-A-D. So it's just I just want to remind you that if it isn't important to you, just forget it. But I want you to understand that as a part of the monarchy now, there are resident prophets in the court. And so the king, and David does it here, the king will go to the prophet, will seek the prophet's counsel, because God communicates among many, many other ways. The prophet becomes a crucial role in the monarchy. And Nathan is the prophet whom he consults. See, now I dwell in a house of cedar. We read earlier that cedar came from Hiram up in Phoenicia, up north. There's great cedar forests, massive forests of cedar trees. Many of them have been cut down. There's very little, but there's still a few up there. I've seen them. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. What does he mean? The tabernacle. So in my Bible, I just circled the two, house of cedar and a tent. <laughs> and so David is saying, there's something wrong here. Now, again, I'll, I'll remind you, David's palace is in the northwestern corner of, of the city of David. It was, we, uh, Alea, uh, she's found it. Uh, she's done a tremendous amount of excavation. And we have a pretty good idea where it is and a little bit of what it looked like. And Nathan said to the king, go. Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David goes to Nathan, says, this is what I want to do. I want to build a temple. I want to build a permanent temple for God. That's, in effect, what he's saying. And what does Nathan the prophet say? Good idea. Go for it. What's the first word of verse 4? But... The same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Nathan, you didn't talk to me first about this. Now, I want you to go to David. And in effect, you're going to tell him you are not going to build the temple. In the, in the account of this in First Chronicles, Nathan will emphasize, you have been a man of blood. Your son who will be a man of peace, will build the temple. Now, at this point, that son has not been born. Who is it? Solomon. 
And as I think we, we've talked about, his, Solomon comes from Shalom. Solomon, Shalom. Solomon is peace. So David is going to hear this message from Nathan the prophet. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell and I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people from Israel from Egypt to this day. I've been moving about in his tent in my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved of all the people, I do not speak with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built a house for Peter? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my house, to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones on earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From that time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So what God says through Nathan and then Nathan tells him is, I am going to bless my people. I'm going to bless my people Israel. I'm going to promise them that I'll make you, David, a great name. I'll appoint a place for my people Israel. What is that place? It's the land. It's the promised land that God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. And then in 17, he defines the boundaries of it. David, you are going to do this. And then I'm going to let my people rest from their enemies. They will be in this land in peace. Now, there are a whole bunch of other things that are going to be coming up, but that is the first part. David, you are the agent of fulfilling part of the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant. You are going to be the one who does that. And that's exactly what David did. He vanquished all the enemies of Israel. And for the first time since they had been in the land under Joshua, the land is at peace. And this is the beginning, and it, 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 um, sources even outside of the Bible confirm this. David and Solomon will build, uh, I'll use the word we sometimes use in our world, they will build an empire from the Euphrates River down to the border of Egypt, and it will be one of the major powers of the Eastern Mediterranean world. Now, I'm, I'm using kind of geopolitical language you use today. God is, that's not what God's saying. God's just saying, what I promised Abraham, you were going to be the agent of the at this point. So, David, I don't, want you, I don't want you to think that your priority is to build the temple. I didn't ask the judges to do that. I didn't ask your predecessor to do that. And I'm not asking you to do it. So, David, you're not going to build a house for me. But I am going to build a house for you. And that house is a dynasty that will never end. And this begins what we call the Davidic Covenant. God is about to make an unconditional, unilateral pro pro 
a prophecy, promise, covenant with David. Indeed, Psalm 89.3 uses the language that God made a covenant with David. And it's unconditional. What does that mean? It isn't conditioned on anything David or any of his descendants do. It is conditioned totally and exclusively on God. He will fulfill this covenant promise. And it's unilateral. What does that mean? It's not made between David. It's not like they negotiated an agreement. It's it's one-sided. God declares it. And so that's what's, this is, this is I, in, in that structure, it's identical to the Abrahamic covenant. Not in content, but David, the Abrahamic covenant, which was first iterated in, in Genesis 12, as you know, is unconditional and unilateral. It's binding on God. This is unconditional and unilateral, binding on God. And I want to talk about the implications of this in just a minute. How does that apply to the geographical boundaries of well, in terms of the country, Israel is far, far, far smaller than it was at the time of David. Much, much, much smaller. I mean, Israel is from from Beersheba up to Dan, you know, up to almost the boundary of, of Lebanon. It's only about a hundred miles, hundred miles, and from the at at you know at its widest point, from the Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea, it's only about twenty miles. That's not very big. It's about the size of New Jersey. So, you know, uh, that, that's why, you, you, well, anyway, but yeah, that's the interesting question. Now, look at what he says now in, in verse, the middle of verse 11. I'll give you a small unit. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And that language is really important because David, you wanted to build a temple for me. I'm going to build a house for you. I will raise up your offspring after you. And shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now let's look at this in two parts. Part one is in verse 12 and 13 and 14. And into 15, it's talking about Solomon. That your son shall come from your body. He will be your biological son. He shall build a house for me. He will build the temple. As I mentioned a moment ago, when you read the parallel account in First Chronicles, uh, it's very clear. David, you've been a man of blood. Solomon will be a man of peace. He will build my temple. And he says, I'll establish his throne. I will be to him a father. He shall be like a son. Because that relationship is established, I therefore will discipline him. And, and he will discipline Solomon. But then he turns it back on David. And verse 16 is, do not miss this. There are three key terms. 
And those three key terms define the structure of the Davidic covenant, an eternal house or dynasty, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. Because, I mean, what does it say? Shall be made sure forever, throne shall be forever. Now that's problematic because this is of an unconditional and eternal covenant that will last forever. Where's the Davidic monarchy in Israel today? Where's the king of Israel today? There isn't anybody there. And when you go through the Old Testament prophets, you see the warnings of so many of the prophets. If you continue in idolatry and you don't repent, I will discipline you. If you continue in idolatry and do not repent, I will send you into exile, and I will rip the land out of your hands. And what happens in that final stage in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar's armies invade from the north and destroy and burn Jerusalem and take all of the valuable artifacts of the temple to Babylonia? And they take the king. And the king dies there. The Davidic king. And that's 586 B.C. and 539 B.C. when they start coming back under Cyrus the Great, the great Persian king. Do they establish a Davidic monarchy then? No. Well, then, when Alexander the Great conquers the Persians, does Alexander allow them to appoint a Davidic king? No. And then when the Roman Empire takes it in 39 B.C., does Rome allow them to appoint a Davidic king? Well, there's Herod, king of the Jews, but he's an Idumean. He isn't of the tribe of Judah, so he is, he's a false king. Well, I could just go on and on through history. So what is really important is the beginning of the New Testament. Because how is Jesus Christ introduced in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Matthew? This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David son of Abraham. And the first 10 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew are the proof that Jesus has the right to claim the Davidic throne. So who fulfills this unconditional covenant promise? Jesus does. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. And so when Jesus shows up and starts, and if you read, for example, Matthew 4, his, his message summarized in one sentence is, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Okay, it's A.D. 30, and you're in Galilee, and this rabbi is saying, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. How are you as a Jew going to process that? How are you going to understand that? Well, the answer is, you're going to think Davidic covenant. You're going to think what we have been looking for. <clears throat> fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He's here. And that is the, and proof after proof after proof after proof is offered that Jesus has the right to claim the throne of David. And so it, the amazing thing, and you already know this because that's what the New Testament is all about, but Jesus will fulfill this Davidic covenant in two stages. Stage one, 
is he's going to come introduce himself as Christos, the anointed one of God, the Christ, the Messiah. But he's going to help everybody understand that my role as the Messiah of God, as the Davidic king, is to die for my people to solve their problem of sin. And then I'm going back to the Father, and I will sit at the right hand of the Father on the Davidic throne, and I will bring that throne to earth when I come the second time and set up my kingdom. Matthew 25, 15 talks about that. So the the fulfillment of this promise, it's very doubtful David understood that. But the fulfillment of this promise, and it's clear, the rabbis of the first century understood that. I mean, everybody, that the fulfillment of this Davidic promise is the Messiah. And that's why they're looking for him, looking for him, looking for him. And so Jesus makes it very clear, I am the Messiah. And here's all the proof that I'm the Messiah. But you guys, it's in the Old Testament, you should see, you, you just don't understand that stage one of my role as a Davidic Messiah is I'm going to die for my people and solve their problem. Stage two, and that's what Revelation 19 is on. When Jesus comes back to the Mount of Olives, the very first thing he's going to do is crush the rebellion and set up his kingdom. And that day of mercy and grace is over. And now the kingdom of what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. When we pray thy kingdom, we're praying for the kingdom that was promised to David to come to earth. And the Messiah, Jesus, is the one who will establish that kingdom on earth. And so, I mean, this is just, this, this, it's summarized in verse 16, and it's reiterated over and over and over again throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So the two main covenants that you must know, what Jesus won't let you into heaven, is the Abrahamic covenant, a promise of land, seed, and blessing to the Jewish people, and the Davidic covenant, an eternal dynasty, throne, and kingdom that is promised to David, and it is the son of David who will claim that promise and inaugurate it, none other than Jesus Christ, the son of David. In the Gospel of Matthew, son of David is used 10 times. The term kingdom is used 50 times to connect the Davidic covenant with Jesus Christ. He is the one who fulfills it. That's why I, uh, you, for some of the Fred's been in, in his normalized classes. I don't believe you can understand the Bible if you don't understand the Abrahamic Davidic covenant. You don't have a framework and structure for understanding it. But you guys have that framework, I know. So you totally understand everything. But it's just, it's, this is so important what God is promising to David here. And what I'm really interested then in, in 18 through the end of the chapter is David's response to this. So, got questions? So they, um, the promises that are made uh, to uh, David and to his son by God is going through a number of conditions. It's just not an absolute A to B. You have all these junctures that you've just gone through that are going to transpire before Christ comes. And so I guess. You know, it's it's hard to discern unless you finish out the Old and New Testament, understand what God's promise is uh, to David, how the temple is going to be built and how Jerusalem is going to be established firmly. Um, 
just can't take and stop it right there. Well, no, the promise, the promise is the framework through which you understand the rest of the Bible. Because that framework is what explains Jesus and why he does what he does and says what he says. How many times when you read the gospel, Jesus said the kingdom of the kingdom of God is like, then he tells a parable or a story. I mean, it's just, he's, he's defining in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing there, he makes it very clear, is he's articulating the ethics of his kingdom. That's the, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' ethical statement of his kingdom. This is what my kingdom citizens will do. This is how they're supposed to live. Now, you know, all there's so many other factors here that bring in, but the focus here is on the kingdom and the monarchy. And what you will see is every single king that follows David will be an inadequate shepherd king. And some of them will be horrendously idolatrous king. And so you leave the Old Testament with huge question marks. Our monarchy's gone. We're back in the land. But where's the king? Then they wait 400 years from the end of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, until the opening of the Gospels. It's 400 years. And the silence of God is broken by John the Baptist. John the Baptist breaks 500, 400 years of silence and does all the crazy things he does in the Jordan River Valley in Judea. And he's just preaching all this stuff. And it's a baptism of repentance, getting people ready for the Messiah. He's cutting the path, as I guess. So that silence is broken, but it's the amazing, and to me, it's always, and I've studied this for you and taught it for many times. The amazing fact is the leadership of Israel in the AD 30s that should have recognized the Messiah don't. Who recognized Jesus as the Messiah? A lot of the common, ordinary people, the prostitutes, the tax gatherers. The people up in Galilee and the down in Judah, they resented people. They didn't want anything to do with the people in Galilee. And I mean, it's, it's just an amazing, it's like it turns it all upside down. The people that should have known Jesus was the Messiah because he was doing everything the Old Testament said he would do, they want to kill him. I mean, it's just all of that, it, it's upended. And so today in, in 2024, we're not looking for the coming of the Messiah. We're looking for the return of the Messiah who's going to finalize this covenant promise and set up God's kingdom on earth. In my view, David is sitting now on the Davidic throne. When he returns, he's going to bring the Davidic throne to earth. And I don't mean a literal throne. I don't mean that. I mean, but the, the right to rule. And that final question that starts in Genesis 3, who has the right to rule this creation? Is it God or Satan? Was Satan's challenging God's right to rule? That is answered, finally, in Jesus. And he will vanquish and crush the rebellion when he returns. There will be no mercy when he crushes the rebellion. Because there have been thousands of years for people to get the message and repent. So, that's why verse, verse 16 is a summary of the covenant promise. And three key words that I don't want you to ever forget. An eternal th dynasty, throne, and kingdom. And as we have now been stating, that is fulfilled in Christ. It's not fulfilled in Solomon. 
It is not fulfilled in Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And it's not fulfilled in 931 when the kingdom splits into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. There's no king in the north that's a good king. And there's no king. There are several good kings in the south and Judah. You know, Hezekiah comes to mind. Josiah comes to mind. Asa, Jehoshaphat. They're good kings. But they don't measure up. They don't fulfill the covenant promise. And then the king's killed by the Babylonians. And there's no more Davidic king. But the Davidic, the Davidic line does not die out. The bloodline does not die out. How do we know that? Look at the genealogy of Matthew 1. The bloodline from David to Jesus is maintained. That's, one of the, that's proof number one that Matthew offers that Jesus has the right to claim the throne. Proof number one, he's in the bloodline of David. I've just given you his genealogy. That's just, it, it, again, you know, the facts are there. The, the evidence is there. And still today, you present all the evidence to people. They say, I don't believe him. I don't need him. I don't want him. I don't want him to deal with him. The facts are there. You have the opportunity. Uh, anyway, let's look at, everybody got this? Okay, our friend. The, the, the people, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the uh, all looking for this glorious king to come riding yeah. on a white horse, and, yeah. and uh, they, they did. Christ didn't fit their model. Exactly. And that's why they refused to. Exactly. They wanted a liberator from Rome. Yeah. And ultimately, of course, Christ would liberate them from all oppression. But they they missed what so much of the Old Testament says that Messiah would do. Red king and all this. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. I love that passage in Isaiah. You know, you will know the Messiah. He will heal the sick. He will give sight to the blind. The deaf will hear. The dead will be raised. What did Jesus do? He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He, you know, and a friend of mine, I went to when I was doing my theology degree. A good friend of mine. We, he then had a ministry in St. Louis for a while with Jewish people, and we went over to visit him one time and. Uh, he invited. He, they had a uh, in St. Louis. There, they had a luncheon every day. And if I don't know if you know anything about St. Louis, it's a pretty heavy Jewish population. And so Tim, uh, it would invite a lot of Jewish people through this line every. They come every week, and so, and it was always neat because it was reaching out and a lot of things to just help them see the main point of Jesus is Messiah and he accepted. And this one Jewish lady, I'll never forget that. Tim was talking to her and said, "What does Messiah say?" Excuse me, what, what does Isaiah say about your Messiah? Well, Isaiah said, because they love Isaiah. Isaiah says that, that the Messiah will heal the sick. He will get sick. And she just quoted it. And, and Tim said, what did Jesus do? Well, I know. And you're going to tell me he didn't, he's still not the Messiah. I mean, it was like, here's the evidence. Here's what he did. But it's just that that hardened heart, that veil is just that refusal to recognize the other. And for you know non-Jewish people, you present the evidence, you build the case for Jesus. I don't care what you say. I don't need him. I'm saying, you know, it's that kind of so it's only ultimately, as John Jesus says in John 16, ultimately it's the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it's, it's up to you and to me to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel, but it's not up to us to change people. That's God's business. They struggle with what 
Exactly. Exactly. Let's look now at data. Are you all right online there, everybody with me? Yes, we are. With me. Yep. All right. We're with you. Good. Now, let's, uh, we only got about 15 minutes. Let's see if we can get through the rest of this chapter, because this is David's response. This is marvelous. What I want you to observe as we read this, you might want to mark this or, or whatever, the phrase, O Lord God, Adonai Elohim, is used eight times here. And the phrase, your servant, is used ten times. Then David went in and sat before the Lord. Now the language there apparently indicates that David went into the tabernacle. And he doesn't go into the Holy of Holies. He sits before the Lord. That, that is... That is astonishing to me. What I mean by that is David does not <coughs> feel sorry for himself. David doesn't pity himself. Oh, I wanted to build the temple. Why doesn't the Lord let me build the temple? You know, he doesn't call for a pity party. He accepts it and goes in and worships the Lord. Who am I? Now remember, oh Lord God is used eight times in this paragraph. This is in effect a prayer. Who am I, O oh Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this is a small thing in your eyes, O oh Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house, your servant used ten times, for a great while to come in this instruction for mankind, O oh Lord God. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O oh Lord God. Because of your promises and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is no God besides you. What a clear declaration of ethical monotheism. You, there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all we have heard with our ears. Who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. Make himself a name, doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you establish for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. That's covenant language, Abrahamic covenant language. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O oh Lord God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house. Do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, Yahweh Sabaoth is God, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O, oh, here he says it again, Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And, O oh Lord, now, Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. You have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O oh Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessings to so the house of your servant be blessed forever. 
Incredible. No pity, no sorrow, praise and worship. Recognizing who he is. Who am I, Lord, for you had a promise like this? I'm nothing but what you promised. May you bring it about. And it's just a, it's a fantastic illustration of why God called David a man after his own heart. No wallowing in self-pity, no sorrow that he didn't get to do what he wanted to do. A worshipful hymn, and really it's a prayer, but it's a worshipful hymn of praise in the form of a prayer to God. And I repeat one more time, O Lord God has used eight times your servant. What a proper understanding of who he is. Adonai Elohim, servant. And twice, Yahweh Sabaoth. And then once, Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of Israel. That covenant title, Elohim of Israel. It's just, uh, I, I, my chill, chills go up and down my back every time I study this. It's an incredible understanding. Uh, let me rephrase it. An incredible declaration of who God is in relation to David. He's just a peon in God's eyes. He's God's servant. There's no pride here, no arrogance, no presumption. It's, an, it's a worshipful acceptance of God's decree. And it's, it's just a marvelous statement of theology, a marvelous understanding of the covenant, Abrahamic covenant, and a marvelous understanding of the, of the incredible Incredible grace God showed to David in giving him this covenant promise, an eternal throne, dynasty, and kingdom. Jim, how how would we apply these things you just stated to our own lives today? Well, I don't think God has made a promise to you of an eternal throne, kingdom. But he has made a number of promises to you, and let's just focus on one, what I like to do. For you and me, the most important covenant is the new covenant. That's the language of Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 and 37, Hebrews 10, where it's all detailed. But it's just throughout, throughout the promises and the prophets of the Old Testament, fulfillment in the New Testament. You and I have entered into another unconditional unilateral covenant. That is a covenant where God will take care of our sin problem. He will put his spirit within us. We will be his temple, and he will ultimately, he will intimately walk with us and ultimately dwell with us in eternity. That's all dimensions of the new covenant. You and I have that kind of relationship. It is conditioned on one thing, our faith. Not what we do, not what we merit. It's conditioned on one thing, the application of the new covenant to your life and all the promises that go with it. And there are dozens of them are dependent on one thing, one condition, your faith. You don't earn it, merit it, deserve it. It's your faith. And so there's three great covenants of the Bible, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And it's called the new covenant because it replaces the old covenant, the law. Now I'm telling you, you already know all this, but that's how I would apply this. And you and I can sit down and say somewhat the same thing to Lord, I am nothing, but you blessed me with this incredible covenant and all of its promises. Lord, bring them about. Fulfill them. In my, it's kind of what David is praying. You and I can do the same thing. Hey, Jim. Yep. Um, also, um, yeah. He, to your point about no pity, 
Um, he is pleased to be a servant in his station and what he is charged to do. He's happy with his place relative to God's providence and what the intent of David's role was. And um, he's thankful for his provision and what he's been blessed with. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just it's a remarkable understanding, deep theological understanding of who God is, and in comparison, who He is. We should. I'm just a take, servant. We should also take that to heart. We should be happy Absolutely. with age. We should be Absolutely. happy with yeah, you and I, and that that's what I was in effect saying when I answered Fred's question, you and I should be able to do exactly the same thing. We are servant in the house of the Lord. Whatever our specific role is in society, in terms of we are God's servant. We're here to serve him and serve others in his name. It's just, I, mean, I love this chapter. You probably noticed that, but it, it is an incredibly important chapter in the Bible. I mean, it really is. And so, you know, we got about six or seven minutes. Are you with me? Do you have any questions or any comments or anything? I want to make sure. I don't want to leave this with any questions. And I mean this. If you forget this, I'm accountable to God. If you forget this, that reflects on me. I'm being a little facetious, but I mean, I really, I really want to press this point. I don't want you to forget this. It's just, it is so important. And and what makes it so wonderfully important for you and me is we see in the gospel that Jesus is the one who fulfills all this. The son of David is Jesus. You know, so and that's what's so marvelous. All right. Don't send me any questions, so I'm going to move on. What chapter 8 does, it there are a number of things in chapter 8, and we're just going to get started with it. But what chapter 8 does is it, it summarizes for us a lot about David's kingdom, and it's just his victories as he neutralizes all of the enemies and builds his empire. It starts with the Philistines. After this day, after what? After this covenant was established and all that, he defeated the Philistines of Sudan. And David took Metheg, um, we do not know where that is, we just don't know what that means, out of the land of the Philistines. I mean, I just think that is astonishing. Because almost the entire First Samuel, the, the enemies of the Philistines, like time after time after again, they're attacking him. And in one sentence, what does it say? And David subdued the Philistines. For the rest of the Bible, the Philistines aren't going to be a problem. I mean, they're going to come up a little bit. There's no longer a problem. Why? Because David subdued the Philistines. And it's just, it's just, it's really something because up to this point, there's just chapter after chapter after chapter of the nemesis of the Philistines in Israel. Now, David subdued them. That's it. You're not going to hear much about the Philistines from here on out. And second, he defeated Moab. Now, I don't know if you're interested in, in all this stuff, but I'll just show you. You know, Moab is here. Moab, by the way, what famous woman is from Moab? Ruth. Yeah. Remember, she is the great-great-grandmother of David. But anyway, so Moab's here. So what is he doing now? And he defeated Moab. He measured them with line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Now, there's a lot in those couple of sentences, but all it means is David drew a line in the sand and said, okay, if you guys want to be loyal to me and serve me as your new king, cross the line. If you don't, you're done. 
The Bible doesn't tell us how many crossed the line, but what do we infer? Just about everybody crossed the line and are now loyal to David. And this is what we'll see in, in, in Solomon's kingdom too. Brought tribute. That, what does that mean? Every year, the king of Moab paid a tribute into the treasury of David. This is one of the, and, and Solomon will continue. This is one of the reasons why Israel becomes extremely wealthy. Because they conquer all these kingdoms and are all paying tribute into the treasury of the nation. The Moabites had been a historic enemy of Israel. When, when Moses was leading the tribes before they go into the conquest under Joshua, they go out and they have to fight the Moabites because they don't like them. By the way, go way, 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 way back to Genesis. What's the origin of the Moabites? Lot had sexual intercourse with one of his daughters. They got him drunk after Sodom and Gomorrah. They lived in a cave, and the daughters are desperate. We, our husbands are dead. If we don't have children and, and that can protect us in our old age, so let's get our father drunk and have sex with him. So that's what one of them did, and she gave birth to Moab, the origin of the Moabites. Then what does it say? Well, then the second daughter goes in to her husband, her uh, father, Lot, gets him drunk, has sex with him, and she gives birth to Ammon, A-M-M-O-N, the origin of the Ammonites. And the Moabites and Ammonites will be historic enemies of Israel. And one of the points of that is you see the horrible facts of degrading sin. And an incestuous situation like this produces something horrible to mortal enemies of Israel. David also, verse 3, let me do this and then I'll quit. David also defeated Hadanezer, the Han of Rohab, the king of Zobah. You have to look on the map. But what we're talking about, now David goes north. Today, what you and I would consider Syria. And he conquers this whole area. Israel has never controlled that up to this point. And that's all it's telling us without getting into all the details. And his power at the river of the Euphrates. Now that's really, really important because if you go back to the covenant God made with Abraham, he said, Abraham, the northern boundary of the land I'm going to give you is the Euphrates River. So David has fulfilled part one of that promise that God made to Abraham. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadanezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants of David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadanezer, brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and from Berothai, the cities of Hadanezer, David took very much bronze. Where is he putting all this treasure? Into the treasury. David is building a kingdom of secure boundaries. And part one, he fulfills of the Abrahamic covenant. He goes all the way to the Euphrates River. I'm going to pick up with verse 9 next week, and then we'll look at how he organizes his bureaucracy. And then chapter 9, the remarkable grace he shows to Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. And then tragically, we'll start to focus on David's character flaw.
and how it brings him down. But I don't want to talk about that right now. Not after talking about chapter 7. All right? That's all you're going to say about this? Yeah, that's all we're going to say about this for today. Let me pray here with you. Father, thank you for sharing uh, with us through chapter 7 this remarkable, remarkable and very, very, very important covenant promise you made to David. An eternal throne, dynasty, and kingdom. And Lord, we know from the rest of the Bible that 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 throne is empty for a while. Nebuchadnezzar destroys and burns Jerusalem and takes the temple apart and levels it, takes the king. There's no Davidic monarchy. There is none when they come back under Cyrus. There's none under Alexander. There's none under the Roman Empire. There's none <clears throat> under even Herod, the king of the Jews. He's a false king. There's no Muslim who allows a king, a Davidic king. The Ottoman Empire doesn't allow a Davidic king. And even in Israel today, 1948 to today, there's no Davidic king. We wait the return of that Davidic king. It's Jesus. He came to earth to solve the basic problem of humanity, sin. He paid the price. He died a substitutionary death. And you accepted that, that wonderful sacrifice, that blood sacrifice, by resurrecting him from the dead. And he's now the king. He's seated on the Davidic throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the Father to say, go get your church and begin the set of dominoes which will bring history to an end when the kingdom of God comes to earth. Lord, these are the, this is the framework that comes from this prophecy, this great covenant, this declaration of grace that you showered upon David. And it all is fulfilled in Jesus. And that is the framework of our wonderful life. We have been bought with a price by the king. We are now his ambassadors. We're his servants. May we be loyal to him. May we love him. And may we represent him. We ask this in your son's name. See you next week.